Hello and welcome to a special Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for because tonight's when program. You know God is in control. You are not sucked into the lie presented in some mainstream news outlet that the world is just chaotic. Chaotic means no one's in control, there's no plan, it's just going whatever. World rulers can do whatever they want with no accountability. That's just not true. God is in control. Whether you've spent time reading the Bible or not, there are often nagging questions about life and what the Bible has to say about it that rattle around in our heads. The Google search doesn't help, so they remain unanswered. Have you ever wanted to just ask someone and get a decent answer? Well, you'd be pleased to know someone did ask those questions and we're keen to share some of the answers. Tonight, Dr. Corbett shares the discussions from his annual Q&A. He received questions from people of all ages, including children, and answered them from a theological position. You may well find answers to questions you hadn't even considered. So let's join Dr. Corbett now for Q&A. Each year, we give people within and outside of the church an opportunity to ask questions in the, the areas that you know we, we sort of deal with as a church. And so today, is that day again where we've had a number of questions that have come in and um, these are going to be facilitated by Louise. <laughs> so just a couple of things I need to preface because the idea is that, firstly, my, my big idea is that every intellectual objection to Christianity actually has a satisfactory answer. And for, for the person who says that they will not become a Christian because they've got too many intellectual objections, uh, they either aren't aware of satisfactory answers or there's something else going on. And often there's something else going on. For the other side of the coin is just because there are satisfactory intellectual answers to intellectual problems or even some of these aren't intellectual they're actually emotional questions that are being asked just because there's satisfactory answers doesn't necessarily automatically mean that someone's going to convert either to christianity so with that in mind i just want to uh, draw our attention to first peter chapter 3 and verse 15 where it says this and this is how peter says to believers who are living at a time when christianity was was under intense pressure and persecution. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I hope that's what we can emulate today as well. So with that, Louise. Good morning. Question number one. Now bear with me, there is a little bit of background with this one. The question starts, when Jesus returns at the final judgment, will those who have rejected his offer of salvation suffer external condemnation or will they be annihilated? And the questioner writes, I came to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9a and read that those who don't know the Lord or believe in him will suffer eternal destruction. Then Chapter 1, verse 9b, continues away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I have always believed that hell is a place where God is not. Those words stayed with me, removed from the presence of the Lord, living in the pain of regret with eternal, unquenchable agony. 
Some time back, I had it said to me that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction is annihilation. Well, I don't believe that this... I don't believe this, that mankind who refuse to have God on his throne and the throne of their lives will be annihilated. Now, sometimes I do take things in the Bible literally, but you cannot take all of the scriptures in a wooden, literal way as you would. Then you would get unstuck. To me, one of the consequences of this thinking is that it can lead to suicide, since there's nothing after the grave anyway, so who cares? Unless I am wrong, theologically, there is something amiss with this annihilation idea. Therefore, my question is, why does much of mankind assume that we live and die and that is the end of the matter? And then on the other hand, why do some Christians assume when Jesus returns at the final judgment that those who will not spend eternity with him will be annihilated? Where does this teaching come from and what can be the ramifications of such an idea? Okay, so the question is asking, what happens after we die? If you have not accepted Christ, do you simply cease to, be, cease to exist as a person, which is the idea of annihilation? And the question is, is based that on Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, is asking the question, when it says eternal destruction, does it mean destroyed as in there's nothing left? And is that what... Uh, some people refer to as annihilation, like annihilation meaning just doesn't exist at all. There's no torment, there's no consciousness at all. That person's just, just it. And you hear, as the questioner has said, you hear people say, when I die, I just go six foot under and that's it. And that's all there is. And so the question is, from a Christian point of view, is, is that true? And based on this verse, can you actually make a case for annihilation from this verse and it's worth noting that the concept of the idea of annihilation is a, a relatively recent idea and the idea of eternal destiny is the classic Christian position what we need to do is to stick to the text of scripture because I've, I've had people who have said I'm not ever going to become a Christian because I can't believe anyone would send someone to hell for eternal torment. Here's the point. Eternal torment is not an expression you'll find in Scripture. You certainly won't find that it says God will send people to eternal torment as if God is going to be the tormentor for eternity. This verse says that when those who have rejected God's offer of forgiveness and salvation, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, which means away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. There's going to be a consequence to the choices that people make in this life. Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 7, broad is the way to destruction and it's not annihilation because we read in uh, Revelation chapter 20, it says, blessed are those who partake in the first resurrection. Over them, the second death will have no effect. The first resurrection is described in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a, a description that says this. Uh, we who were, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, we who were dead in trespasses and sins have now been made alive in Christ. And obviously it's talking about being born again, a spiritual birth. 
That which was dead is now alive. That's a resurrection. And that's the first resurrection, your salvation. And over those who have received the offer of forgiveness and salvation, the second death, what's the first death? Well, our physical death. Our physical death would be the first death. The second death would be... And death in the Bible doesn't mean cease to exist. It means separated from the life source. And that's what that verse is saying. You'll be separated from all that is life, all that is good, all that is glorious. So the scripture seems to be pretty clear that this is referring to eternal separation from God, which is God honouring his image in man. It's the Latin term, imago Dei. He created mankind in his image because he's endowed us with the ability to choose and even choose our own eternal destiny. So I think there is no place for annihilation in this. And that's why... That's why we preach. Because the question is right. If there is nothing beyond the grave, there's no hope of eternity, there's no offer of eternal life. And we have to consider if one choice is eternal life and the other is eternal death, both go on forever. That means separation. That means being united with Christ. We want to do all we can to appeal to people to turn to Christ. That's clearly how we read in the book of Acts that the apostles went about pleading with people. And it's the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We plead with people to turn to Christ. So, no, I don't think that scripture teaches annihilation. I've got uh, uh, ancient sources here, which I won't uh, fuss with, but the, the word ionos, which is the word translated eternal, it... it it means everlasting. It just goes on and on and on. And the, ter- the eternal destruction simply means being separated from God and that's the choice you made and that's the choice you live with for eternity. So that's, that's why the choice you make this side of the grave will determine where you'll spend eternity. And the question is not whether you've been a good boy or a good girl. The question is, did you receive Christ's offer of salvation and forgiveness? So that's, that's that answer. Okay, question two. According to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, should one determine that the Apostle Paul was moving toward universalism as he was in his ageing ministry? Uh, now, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Okay, so universalism is the idea that when Jesus Christ died, all people were granted salvation. They may not be aware of it, that's all. It's similar to another word uh, called inclusivism, which is the idea that God includes people of any religion because of Jesus dying on the cross. In other words, if you're a good Hindu, you'll be saved because Jesus died on the cross. If you're a good Muslim, you'll be saved because Jesus died on the cross. That's called inclusivism. It sounds very similar to universalism. There's a couple of reasons why we know Paul did not become a universalist. Firstly, in uh, 2 Timothy, and he he tells Timothy to preach the word in season or out of season so that people can come to know Christ. That doesn't sound like a universalist. Secondly, we know from the record in the book of Acts that we see Paul continue to plead with people to turn to Christ. 
Now, if you're already saved and you don't know it, there's no need to do that. There's no need to preach even. There's just no need. But they did, and they put their lives on the line to do it. In uh, Paul's epistle to the Philippians, which was about the second or third last epistle he wrote, when he was in his final imprisonment, he talks about seeing the gospel being preached by people who perhaps had mixed motives, and he thought, and he writes there in First Philippians chapter 1, I'm actually glad that the gospel is being preached. I can't vouch for their motives, but I'm still glad the gospel is being preached. And then he says this incredible thing in, in chapter 1, that he's been able to minister the gospel to the Praetorian Guard. These are like the meanest guys on the planet at that time. They were sworn to protect Caesar. And they were, the, they were selected because they were the meanest hombres. That's Spanish, by the way. Uh, <laughs> The meanest hombres in town. And, and Paul says, but I've been able to, to be able to share the gospel with them. So here Paul doesn't sound like a universalist. And this was sort of just before, in fact, he probably put Philippians epistle down and wrote to Timothy. So no, there's, there's no sense. I, I, did, I, I have got this uh, quote from uh, some commentators from the 1800s. They, they say this about that verse. If God is, in a sense, the saviour of unbelievers, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that is, he is willing to be so everlastingly and is temporarily here their preserver and benefactor, much more of believers. He is the saviour of all people, potentially. So Paul is saying he's the saviour of all people by the sense that he's, he's still administering goodness to all people, which is a part of salvation. But to be saved for eternity requires those who believe. So that's, that's that. So no, Paul did not change his position and become a universalist. All right, question three. Why does God allow us to suffer things like mental illness, cancer, etc., if he loves us? See, that's not an intellectual question. That's an emotional question and, and this is sort of, I think, where we as Christians need to be sensitive to people who have emotional objections to the gospel as well. And so it starts with a premise. If you give your life to Christ and you have surrendered your life to God, everything will go well for you. The premise is an idea. The, the problem with the premise is that it's not true. And it's not true because in... In this life, Jesus promised you will have tribulation. You want to claim the promises of Christ? That's a promise. None of us need to claim it because we all live in this life. We know that cancer happens. We hate cancer. We hate, we hate unjust pain and suffering. We hate it. But this is a part of the world we live in. The thing about knowing Christ in the midst of cancer and for those who've been a part of this church for any, any length of time, you'll know that we have walked with people through cancer. In fact, we just buried one last week and we, we don't think that if you get cancer or a mental illness or if something tragic happens to you that God has abandoned you or God is still not good. We don't think that at all. In fact, our mission in, in this, and, and I hope, if you haven't heard me say this, I hope you will, and I hope you hear it right now. As pastors in this church, our primary mission is to help people to die well. 
comma, to die well means to live well. It's the only way you can really die well. But there's a comma after that one as well. Our mission is to help people to die well by living well when life is not going well. And life will not go well for people. One of the things that I think is really important is when, when we understand who God is and we understand the Bible, it does something wonderful to our mental health. Because when you know God is in control, you are not sucked into the lie that is subtly presented in social media and on mainstream news outlets that the world is just chaotic. Chaotic means no one's in control, there's no plan, it's just going whatever. World rulers, can, despotic rulers can do whatever they want with no accountability. That is just not true. God is in control. Nothing happens by accident. And for the believer, we rest in that. We don't struggle. We're not, this is not turmoil for us. We are, we are able to rest in the knowledge that God is in control. Let me give you a couple of scriptures to frame this. For me, the golden treasure chest of the Bible is Romans chapter 8. If you could, if you could just process Romans chapter 8, this, this will just do your soul really, really good. This is verse 20, Romans 8, 20. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly. Now that sounds, that, this sounds like it's talking about the devil. It sounds like Satan's come in and messed it up and the fall has messed up creation and, and it's now suffering futile and futility for us means cancer. It means road trauma. It means tragedy. It means divorce. It means depression. It means mental illness. All these futile things that are really hard to process in a world that we know was created by a good God. But it says, but because of him who subjected it, and this is how these last two words reveal, this cannot be the devil. See the last two words? In hope. The devil never gives hope, but God does. What does this mean? The hope is, as C.S. Lewis said, whose wife died of cancer, bone cancer. And as he was walking through that journey with her, there was that time, and you've, you're probably aware of the story, where he went to the chapel in, in Cambridge and was, was praying in the little Anglican chapel. And the, the rector came in and said, are you, praying? are you praying for your wife to be healed? And he, he said, no, no, I'm praying for God to do something in my life while she struggles with the cancer. And it's a, it's a profound thought that the in-hope bit is, is this, and C.S. Lewis writes about this, we long for things that will never be satisfied in this life. We want things to be better that will never be better in this life. And he says, because we have these desires and every desire we have can be satisfied in one way or another, we know that we were not created just for this life that we have a life beyond the grave, and that's our hope. A, a life beyond the grave where there will be no more cancer, no more mental illness, no more tragedy, no more divorce, no more depression, no more crime. That's our hope. And in the meantime, we go on and we read a bit further down in Romans chapter 8, where it says this, 
This is the Apostle Paul who was imprisoned in Rome, then put under the Praetorian Guard, as I've just referred to, who, was then, who then stood before Caesar, who pronounced upon him the sentence of death. And he was taken down to the port and dispatched. And he wrote this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer he goes on to say is nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So why would a good, love, a good God allow depression and cancer because one day he's going to do away with it. And in the meantime, we lift our hands to heaven, not as a clenched fist, but as an open palm, and say, we need your help to get through this. Okay, this question has a bit of background as well. The question is, where do demons go when they are cast out of a person? In Matthew chapter 8, 28 to 34, Mark chapter 5, 1 to 20, and Luke 8, 26 to 39, the demons in the story beg Jesus not to send them into the abyss, not to send them out of the country, but instead they ask and beg to be sent into the herd of pigs. What was the point of being sent into pigs if they simply ran off the cliff and into the sea? Where did the demons go then? And what was the point of the pigs as an interim step? Does Matthew 12, 43 to 45 help us to answer this question? And how does this compare with Matthew 17, 14 to 18, when Jesus cast out a demon from a boy and there is no explanation of what became of the demon? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I've, and I've never been asked this question before. And so let's have a look at the text that is referred to here. And when he came to the other side, that's Jesus, to the country of the Gadarene, two demon-possessed men met him out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Uh, there's, a bit of, there's a lot going on here. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, going into the city. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. It's an odd response. You'd reckon they'd be grateful. But they were more concerned about the pigs than the, the demon-possessed man or the demon-possessed men. Right, here, there's a couple of things going on here. One is when Jesus turns up in, uh, I think it's in uh, Mark or Luke's Gospel, it's, it, that he accounts just one demoniac. Um, but the demoniac instantly recognises Jesus because it's not the demoniac, it's the demons within, within him. That's the first thing. Um, in, in the other account, we have Jesus saying, um, what is your name? Now, I've heard Christians say, whenever you're casting out a demon, you always have to ask them what their name is. Now, here's the thing. This might be a newsflash to you, but the devil is a liar. Everything the demonic says is grounded in a lie. So when the, the demons speak through this man and say, our name is Legion, for we are many. Guess what? It's almost certainly a lie. And 
The other point here is only Jesus ever interchanged with the devil or demons. Not one record of a Christian having a conversation with a demon is authorised. Acts chapter 16, there was the demon-possessed girl who came behind Paul and was tormenting him. Paul just turned around and said, I cast her out in Jesus' name, bang, done. No conversation, nothing about it. Not going to have a chat with a demon. What's the point? They're only going to lie to you. <laughs> what is the point? And their mission is distraction. Here's the other thing. They instantly recognise Jesus. The second thing is they know what their destiny is. Don't send us into the abyss before the time. So they know he could do it. That's interesting. And they know where they're going to end up. That's interesting. And I've heard people say, well, it was punishment on the farmers because they're not allowed to farm pigs because they were Jewish. But they weren't Jewish. This is the other side of Israel. This is over in the Gadarenes, the Old Testament territory known as Bashan, which is interesting because that territory, Bashan, comes from a, a word that means place of the serpent, <laughs> which is interesting. So these were not Jews on that side of the Sea of Galilee. And so here's, here's what we see. They asked to go into pigs. Now this, this is interesting because now we know demons can influence animals. Well, that's interesting. Oh, there's lots of interesting things here. And then when they jump off the cliff into the water, the pigs die. And here one commentator said this. They did to the pigs what they were always intending on doing to the men. Destroy them, kill them, so that they would forfeit their souls for eternity. So that's interesting. So we see that these demons were on that side of the territory, not on this side. That's interesting because there is good reason to think that they are confined to a territory. So let's come to this question. What happened to them after the pigs drowned? What happened to the boy that, that is referred to in this question when Jesus cast the demon out of the, the, the boy? Well, Jesus also said that these demons can be cast out and they will wander around looking for a next host. That's what happens. So here's what we know. If you're a Christian, if you are someone who knows Christ, you already have a host. You have the Holy Spirit. So this is where we need to be careful about the word possession because demon-possessed does not occur in the New Testament. Demonized does. And it's a reference to what they do in your head. And there may well be, at times, a link between the previous question about those who battle with extraordinary mental illness. It could be because there's something spiritual going on there. That's a thought. So what we see here is that the weapon that Jesus used was the truth. It, the truth highlighted what these demons were always going to do, that is kill and destroy, which is what Jesus said about the devil as well. So where does it go? Where do they go? They go looking for another host. That's, that's the simple answer because they are disembodied. They do not have a body. Who made sin? Now this comes from a young person, this question. And, and let's just point out a couple of things. Firstly, when God finished creating everything that he had made, he, he, all the way through he said, he looked at what he created and he said, this is good. When he created mankind, he looked at everything then and said, this is very good. And then he rested from creation. 
So what do we know about creation? He made it good. What is sin? Sin is always a distortion of something that was intended to be good. It's always a distortion of something that was intended to be good. We have an ability to communicate with each other. This is a good thing. There are many wives here who wish their husbands would tap into that. And, but that ability to communicate a good intention, a good thing, can be distorted when we attack people with things. So that's, a, that's, that's sin. This might be a newsflash to some of you. Sex was designed and created by God as a good thing. What does the enemy do? He wants to distort it. Rape, incest same sex, sex, and so on. All these things are distortion of the good gift that God had originally made. So who made sin? God created a good world and through the devil's instigation, manipulating mankind, we have made what God intended to be good to be distorted sin. So in John uh, chapter 8, verse 44, this is described as the father of lies who is a a, a murderer and a thief as well. All right, next question. Why do we believe in God and Jesus? What proof is there to show that he even exists? That's a great question. This comes from a young person as well, again. I hope every parent can answer this question when their child asks because it's a great question. I wish more children would ask this, particularly their parents. So the answer, why do we believe in God and Jesus? What proof is there? Well, firstly, we, we believe for good reasons. That's the first thing to note. We believe for good reasons. Secondly, we know that a truth claim, any, any claim, a truth claim has four tests. Is it verifiable? Is it coherent? Does it make sense? Does it comport with what we know to be true already? And if this claim was false... Could it be proven to be false? So with that in mind, we know that God exists for several reasons. Let, let me just run through some of this. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. This is Paul writing to a people who lived at a time when, when they worshipped a multitude of gods. Um, and he says this, What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, that is, all people, are without any excuse. No one can actually say to God, you didn't give me any proof. So we have, we believe in God and Jesus that we believe they exist because we have good reasons to do so. Let me run through those truth tests. We know that a claim is true if it passes these four tests. Is it verifiable? Can you, can you verify that? Is there proof? Is there evidence? Secondly, is it coherent? Does it make sense? Does it, does it, uh, does it accommodate all of the known bits of information we have? That, that's what coherent means. And thirdly, does it comport with what we already know to be true? Does it comport... Does it agree with known facts? And fourthly, if it was actually false, could we, could we prove it to be false? Like for example, if I said to you, that house over there, not pointing at any particular house, that has an invisible man living in it. 
And you go over there and you look around, you go, you come back and say, I didn't see any invisible man there. I go, see, I told you. That you can't prove that claim false because I've given you a claim that you can't prove it to be false. So you don't have to believe that claim now. That's the, that's the point. Here's how we know God exists. We have five really good reasons. Number one, the universe actually had a beginning. And when it began, it was all matter, space, energy and time that also began. So because those things resulted... Whatever caused it could not be those things. The cause of the universe could not have been those things. So, the, so think about that. So what we're looking for, thus the cause of all there is in the universe was immaterial, not made of stuff, not limited to one location, that word is omnipresent, the possessor of unlimited energy, that word is omnipotent, all power, and not subject to ageing. Therefore, the cause of the creation of the universe must be timeless, or the other word is eternal. Secondly, the universe displays intricate design and planning. So whatever the cause of that, it had to have a mind, which can, can only come from a personality. So we know we're dealing with a being who has all those qualities. Thirdly, the creatures within the universe universally exhibit certain intuitions. You only have to go to um, Trevallon Dam to see the, the story of the eels. Like, where'd that knowledge come from that they have to, to swim back to Fiji or something and then to swim back here to spawn? It's, it's, where did that come from? And mankind has a special intuition called a moral conscience. That is, we're aware, we're aware of ourselves, we're aware... I, I put my cat in front of the mirror. It has no clue it's looking at itself. Trust me, I've, got, I've had three teenage girls, I've still got one. When you put them in front of a mirror... Anyway. And, and all beings have an awareness of right and wrong. Where did that come from? Because it's not chemical. Fourthly, the creator has actually revealed himself within this creation by taking on human form and offering his life as a sacrificial atonement for the sins of humanity and was despised and hated by his creation who executed him. Jesus then validated his claim as the creator and supreme being by rising from the dead. And that's really the big one. The fifth of these reasons that we, that we can be sure God exists is that, uh, it says four, but it's number five, the, the creator's offer of a relationship with him through his son is something you can test. Psalm 34 verse 8, you can taste and see. It's verifiable. And it's also the testimony of millions upon millions of witnesses who have experienced what the Bible calls salvation and what Luke mentioned over communion to be sanctified, to have the Spirit of God working in, in you. So we see at the close of the Gospel of John, which I already mentioned before is the Gospel of Belief, where Jesus presented all these good reasons to believe, we see a couple of things happen. In chapter 12, John says, despite Jesus giving all of these signs that 
should lead to belief. The Jews refused to believe. It's an amazing statement that even, that's chapter 12. That's after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead who had been dead four days. And then they saw Lazarus walking out of the tomb and Jesus says, unbind him. He'd been embalmed for four days. He walked out, Jews saw it, and they still refused to believe. That tells us this is not an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. So one of the disciples, his name was Thomas. He's known as Doubting Thomas, which is a bit unkind. But he had doubts. That tells us that doubts aren't necessarily bad because it says when Jesus came to Thomas, after Thomas said to his fellow disciples, oh yeah, you claim you've seen him, but I haven't seen him. (laughs) I'm not going to believe until I see him, until I put my hand in his scarred hands and my hand in his pierced, spear-pierced side. Thomas answered him after Jesus turned up and stood in front of him and Thomas could see. (laughs) Now I've seen. He said this, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Note this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's the promise that we have. God will give every one of us the proof that we need to believe in him. And I want to finish with this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Romans chapter 10 verse 13, will be saved. So how do we know God and Jesus exist? Well, you can put it to the test. Call upon him. And calling upon him could sound something like this. If you're real, reveal yourself to me. You may, na- you may not need to pray that. You may already have that inkling that he's there. But now your call is, God, if you can help me, help me. Change my life. Transform my life. That's calling on the name of the Lord. And see what happens. Would you please thank Louise? All right. This one is the truth. What could take away the sting of death? Only a love I hadn't met. What could cause this restless heart to rest? Only the promise that you kept for so long. I was searching for truth when all along I was searching for you. Then you opened my eyes. You opened my eyes to see you, Lord. And oh.
Father, we thank you there is only one truth, the one who said, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life. Father, we thank you that you haven't made a religion for us to adhere to its rules and rituals and ceremonies, but you've created a way for us to have a relationship for eternity with you through sending your son into this world to pay the price of our rebellion. And now, God, I pray for all those who are estranged from you, that in this moment, one prayer, one prayer can change their entire life, both now and for eternity. A prayer that comes not off the words on a page, not because someone said, try these magic words, but a prayer that comes from a heart calling out to you, God, come into my life. Forgive me for all that I've done wrong and help me now from this point to live for you. I need your help. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and lead me, I pray. And Father, for us, as we go about our work week, as we encounter questions, as we encounter opposition, as we encounter people who perhaps have objections to Christ and Christianity, help us, Lord, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, to ever be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have and to do it with gentleness and respect. May we know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. If you're joining with us online, please jump onto that Zoom foyer. We'd love to see you there. God bless you. Have a great week. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Q&A from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Some of the questions that were posed to Dr. Corbett may well have been in your own mind, so we hope tonight's discussion has been helpful for you. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.